This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, February the 6th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, ChatGPT has some interesting accessibility possibilities. Denny Boudreaux will share his thoughts. And the CRTC is considering revamping internet pricing in Canada. Marco Flalo will have more information on that. Spe- Starting your week with us. And the show begins with the top story of the day, which is looking abroad. A major earthquake has rocked parts of Turkey and Syria. Turkey and northern Syria, after a powerful 7.8 earthquake, struck near the border just after 4 a.m. local time. From its epicenter in Turkey's Gaziantep province, the quake destroying hundreds of buildings in both countries. What officials fear has buried alive more victims. Syrian and Turkish search and rescue teams digging through the rubble, hoping to find survivors. This was the strongest earthquake to hit Turkey in nearly 100 years. It was felt in Lebanon, here in Israel and Egypt. Jordana Miller, ABC News, Jerusalem. In another story dealing with international relations, Canada is sending military resources to Haiti. Stephanie Taylor has those details. Gang violence has become a reality for those living in the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince, with hundreds having reportedly been kidnapped and killed. The UN says gangs are restricting access to health care and water and are also sexually assaulting women and children. Haiti's political and humanitarian crisis has led to calls for Western countries to intervene, with the Canadian government saying the aircraft deployment comes in direct response to Haiti's request for help. Canada says the patrol aircraft is currently in Haiti and will remain there for a number of days, helping with surveillance and intelligence efforts. Stephanie Taylor, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Coming back to Canada, the federal government, B.C. government and 15 coastal First Nations have endorsed the blueprints for a vast network of marine protected areas. Emily Javesky has that story. The Marine Protected Area Network Action Plan will support efforts to conserve 25% of Canada's oceans by 2025 and 30% by 2030. The federal government says it will provide a planned approach for the creation of new protected areas in the Northern Shelf bioregion, which extends from the top of Vancouver Island to the Canada-Alaska border. The government says it will be co-governed by Indigenous, federal and provincial governments. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. Speaking of government's policy, Finance Minister Krisha Freeland met with her provincial counterparts on Friday. The issue of transitioning to a greener economy was a major point of discussion. Freeland points out that as the U.S. incorporated green initiatives into their Inflation Reduction Act, it changes the landscape for Canadian investment. It has changed the playing field when it comes to the global competition for capital. And it's not anything specific about Canada. It's not anything about Canada negotiating with Washington. This is the law. Congress has passed it. And it's created a new situation for Canada, for all the countries in the world. Earlier in the day, Freeland acknowledged that the government still has to be prudent in how they make those investments. Even as we recognize we need to meet the moment when it comes to building that clean economy, creating those Canadian jobs, when it comes to supporting our health care system, we recognize we're doing it at a time of real fiscal constraints. A little bit more in terms of economic news for you. The U.S. labor market remains robust. The government's job report for last month showed employers added more than half a million jobs in January. Michelle Franzen has a story on how the job market is impacting remote work. There's still a push by employers to fill open positions. Experts say even though there are fewer postings for remote work, the demand for those searching is still there. Nearly half of all job applications on LinkedIn are now for remote jobs. Lauren McIntyre, who has a 15-month-old, has been looking for remote work as a personal assistant for a few months. We did the math, and if I were to put my daughter in daycare, it would cancel out whatever income 
I'd be getting for that day. Experts say some of those remote positions might also pay less. The trade-off for not having the cost of commuting. Michelle Franz and ABC News. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. On Friday, you were asked, has online shopping made it too easy to spend money? And we also asked, what techniques do you use to limit your spending online? This one is great. We know we asked a good question because the final results, fitty, fitty. 50% said yes, 50% said no. Holy smokes, it was a battle. And on Facebook, at Accessible Media Inc., Kendall writes in, I save money grocery shopping online because I plan my meals and find good deals. I don't make impulse purchases anymore, and my mind can function better grocery shopping from my home and then picking them up. I've lost weight and my wellness has improved overall since I started shopping this way. To answer the question, I've always found it too easy to spend money, no matter the medium. I always enjoy it when Kendall gets involved over on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. You should be like Kendall and get involved in the comment section with thoughtful responses like that. Maybe today's daily poll might get you fired up at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. We're going to set this one up with a little bit of a news story. American retailers are adding more security measures to prevent theft. Julie Walker has the story. Putting items under lock and key as a quick way to stop thieves. Some like Rite Aid considering extreme measures. The chief officer recently saying it's looking at literally putting everything behind showcases to ensure products are there for customers who want to buy. But by trying to solve one problem, these businesses may be creating another, turning off shoppers with overreaching measures. The National Retail Federation's security survey shows $94.5 billion in losses last year to theft. Julie Walker, New York. So that leads right into the poll. Do you get annoyed when stores lock away everyday items? Yes, no, or I haven't noticed. One of the first times I traveled to the U.S. as an adult by myself, I forgot to bring a razor. So I went into a pharmacy and I tried to buy a razor. And I found it to be tremendously difficult because all the razors were locked away and you had to find an employee to open up the case to simply provide you with a $2 razor. It really struck me as annoying, but I was down there for a wedding, so I definitely had to shave. I couldn't be looking all uh, slothingly as I wandered around New Orleans and I was already looking pretty slothingly due to the impacts of life in New Orleans. So I thought, I thought to myself, that is really annoying. And you start to see this creeping a little bit into the Canadian retail space as well. Certainly, uh, some of the major pharmacies, a lot of their cosmetic products or fancier toothpastes or electronic toothbrushes are locked away and to a certain hundreds of dollars. <laughs> so you maybe want to protect those and not leave them out uh, looming. That said, when we're talking about $5 razors or $4 razors being locked away, it becomes a pretty gosh darn inconvenience. At the end of the day, I'll probably just buy them online from one of these major warehouse retailers. It makes it pretty easy that way. I don't need to try and track down an employee. And this is the perpetual push and pull of the modern retail space. That these retailers will tell you, my gosh, theft is really going up and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, maybe that's because now 75% of your checkout lines are self-checkout. You've eliminated any kind of barrier to get people stopping on their way out of the store. You've changed the accountability framework by moving towards all of these self-checkouts. And here's the thing. If you're going to incorporate more self-checkouts that still require employees to monitor those self-checkouts and then potentially be a security guard for your customers on the way out, that's a little bit awkward. That's a little bit weird. But then as you start putting more items behind lock and key as well, now you need more employees to manage these keys and unlock these booths. It's a real eating your own supper. Uh, what's the expression? To uh, bit off their nose to spite their face, right? You're talking about just moving resources around and at the end of the day, making the customer experience worse and thus sending them further online. Alex Smythe, I don't know if you've noticed this trend of more everyday items being locked away, but when you, if you have noticed it, does it annoy you? Yeah, and Dave, you just took every single one of my points Sorry. I was going to Sorry. say. I was going to talk about the self-checkouts. I was going to talk about the... Uh, the um, 
the uh, move away from physical employees at the at the doors and then trying to find the employees to be able to unlock said items if you do need them yes the whole process is becoming increasingly annoying and then we can even touch on the fact of our daily poll from friday where you know it becomes more and more uh um enticing and easy to spend money shopping online because then you don't have to deal with the hassle when you physically go into the store so thank you for stealing a bit of my thunder but i completely agree with you it's very annoying and it's always those same types of items like razor blades i always found was the first thing i really noticed that end up being behind these uh, uh kind of cases and these locked areas and you know at first it was like oh this is odd okay fine i just need to find someone but you know you go to those pharmacy stores, you go to the grocery stores, it can be quite difficult actually tracking down oh, somebody yeah. to oh, unlock yeah. it. And you you think, especially if there's some of these bigger brands out there, that there's going to be so much like money that they're generating that the theft of small items like razor blades specifically, how much is that actually going to impact their bottom line? They're still making record profits, but I think think when when this topic came up I, I started to think about how things are done especially in pharmacies and 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 places like that in europe because essentially you walk in there was a very small room and there was someone behind a counter and that's it they don't have the the setups that we have here where it's literally you know it's another store you can get all your over the counters as uh, we we like to say they don't really have that over in Europe. It's basically you go to the pharmacist, you go to the desk, and everything is behind glass, and they, it has to be prescribed. Now, that's due to more tight regulations on dealing of medications. But, you know, there may be, it seems like it's almost a little bit more of a push towards that kind of model, which I don't really like. I like the freedom of being able to go into the store, pick up cold medicine, pick up, you know, sinus pills, things like that, uh, Band-Aids, without having to, go to a clerk, go to a desk to get all those items. Yeah, going for a graze is always is always a nice opportunity. But maybe there is some kind of model that you're describing there, Alex, that could be the alternative, that instead of having these big wide open spaces, you do have you have more of the, uh, uh, for the sake of simplicity, I'll call the uh, cannabis store setup or what used to be the beer store setup. Walk up to someone, tell them what you want, they get it for you, they give it to you, you check out, you get out of there. there there'd, be, there'd be something to that, especially when you're talking about uh, some of the harder to find items. But then Kendall's approach that he shared with on Facebook from Friday's question saying, hey, I order online, somebody finds that stuff for me, it shows up and boom away you go. So I don't, I don't know. There, there's models to play with here, but certainly locking razors away and locking toothpaste away and locking toothbrushes away and locking all this stuff away is uh, going to get pretty annoying by the end of the day. And some of those items are very easy and very affordable and very cheap to go buy online. So, uh, so yeah, with things like same day delivery, uh, good luck retailers. Good luck. Alex, well, thank Dave, you. Go ahead, Alex. I was just going to jump in and maybe it's a certain big box store model where you just have someone at the exit just marking off those uh, those receipts when you you leave the store. That's an easy solution to it as well. You know, just one person, oh, line up. It doesn't take a lot of time. It takes a minute at most. Even if there's a lineup, they, they check, make sure everything is accounted for, and then you head out. Are you uh, referring to a, a big box store that involves a lot of free samples as you walk yes, your way and, through? Yes, and, that... and red vests and uh, <laughs> a, a big uh, a bulk items. Yes. Ah, yes. Well done. Well done. <laughs> I like that one. Alex, thank you for this. Yeah, thank you. That is Alex Smythe. You'll hear from Alex in just a couple of moments. But in the meantime, you should vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Here's Alex with the weather report. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where there's rain with up to 5 millimeters falling, wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour, and a high of 4 degrees. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's cloudy with a chance of showers this afternoon, and the high is 5 degrees. In Montreal, Quebec, it is cloudy with clearing up this morning, making its way for sunshine. The high is minus five, feeling like minus 11. In Ottawa, Ontario, there's clouds clearing this morning, making their way for sunshine as well. The high is minus six, but feeling like minus 16. In Toronto, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy, becoming a mix of sun and clouds later. The high is minus two, feeling like minus seven. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, 
It is mainly cloudy. The high is zero degrees, but the wind chill makes it feel like minus 27. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's mainly cloudy with snow and blowing snow expected later. There's up to two centimeters set to fall. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is plus one, but it's gonna be feeling like minus 17. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, there's clouds clearing this morning, making their way for sunshine as well. Wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is zero, feeling like minus eight. In Calgary, Alberta, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds later. The high is seven degrees, but with that wind chill makes it feel like minus 12. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds with more clouds rolling in and the wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The highest plus four, a feeling like minus nine. Up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's mainly sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds later. The high is minus 21 and with that wind chill makes it feel like minus 37. Over to Vancouver, BC, there's a lot of rain in the forecast today, up to 15 millimeters is expected to fall. So be sure to have your umbrella today. The high is seven degrees. And finally, in Victoria, BC, there's rain off and on today. The high is nine degrees. And that's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, a few news stories developed over the weekend that involved policies that impact people experiencing homelessness. Michelle McQuig will take a closer look at a few of those stories. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There were a few news stories that emerged over the weekend that dealt with issues faced by people experiencing homelessness. Two Canadian cities are looking to find ways to better serve those communities. In both cases, there are national implications. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press, and Michelle has some insight on these stories. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. Michelle, let's begin in Winnipeg, where people in the city are considering the creation of a missing persons database to track when a person experiencing homelessness goes missing. What's spearheading this push? Yeah, it, it's actually, it, there's a couple of interesting initiatives in Winnipeg, and they're both stemming from the same thing. And that is uh, a story you might remember from last year when a man was arrested over the summer. He now stands accused of killing four Indigenous women, uh, all of whom did experience some some degree of homelessness at some points in their lives. Uh, so basically, they found a serial killer who was allegedly playing, or an alleged serial killer who was allegedly preying on, on homeless women. So that's really what, what sort of escalated these calls, but they've been simmering for some time. What are some of the delicacies or nuances that are being considered in this creation? Because it's not as simple as just making a database. No, it's really not. Uh, and that's only just one thing that's being considered. But part of it is that they're trying to respect people's privacies and reasons for coming to the city, especially for the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, which is, of course, the driving impetus behind this in light of the cases that that I talked about before. Um, they're, they're pointing out that a lot of people wind up coming to the city in a bid to get away from some very legitimate concerns and, and threats that they might be facing in other communities. So their privacy is important. They don't necessarily want to be found by some people. So in that sense, it can be difficult to track who is actually missing. Uh, so what's being considered is that a number of the sort of shelters and community organizations that are, that offer services are, are considering ways in which they could assemble some some key information, <clears throat> get a sense of people's more local patterns and have some internal information that could be shared with one another to determine if someone really is missing before they actually file a report. Right, that if, that if somebody is off the grid or goes missing, what's a protocol, what's a process there? Um, yeah, I, I, what are their usual patterns within the system? And that, that because all systems, and Winnipeg is no exception, are a bit of a patchwork, in that sense, I can understand why the discussions are happening in between different agencies and providers. Right. Like, again, I, I can only apply the lens of places where I've lived because that's where I understand that's where I understand these models. Mm -hmm. But Thank in a you. place like Ottawa, there's you know four or five different shelters in a couple block radius, but there's no assurance that any there's any kind of collaborative effort between those four or five shelters. 
You got it. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, Michelle, how, this, this question probably goes a little bit beyond either of our pay grades, but how might this <laughs> end up being a model that could be applied nationally or some, or, 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 or broader implication? Yeah, well, I, I think we'd have to see a little bit more about if it actually gets off the ground. Um, but it would be interesting to I, I don't know. It, it is an interesting question to speculate. Winnipeg has been a, a, a bit of an epicenter for violence against uh, Indigenous women and girls in particular. Uh, so it would be interesting to see if there were any kind of crime stats that could back this up or, or reports and improvement in, in reports filed. I don't know. It, it's yeah. hard to track how this would be. But Another aspect I just wanted to flag really quickly that they're talking about in order to, as part of the same initiative is they're talking about in, implementing some training at the shelter staff level to recognize predatory behavior mm. and, and potentially help some people who might be at risk from someone like that. Uh, that's a field that I would personally love to read a little bit more about because that's that's an interesting one as well. Yeah, understanding some of those some of those signs as well for sure. Michelle, mm-hmm. it, it certainly is not just people in Winnipeg experiencing homelessness that are going through a, a rough patch at this time of year. Uh, keeping warming centers open is something that Ontario is considering, specifically Toronto, because mm-hmm. as you are well aware, Southern Ontario just went through a wild cold snap in the last week. Uh, temp- oh, yeah. Temperatures on Fridays fell well into the negative 30s. And that is the city considering the possibility of keeping warming centers open the rest of the winter. What's what's really under consideration for this decision? Really under consideration is, is <clears throat> excuse me, is how to provide a, a huge gap in, in the services that are available in the winter for homeless residents, as called out by the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Uh, worth noting that their call out was not limited to just Toronto. They said this is a province-wide issue, that there are just not enough services for for any kind of moderate cult. Uh I'll use Toronto as the first example, though, although I have to say my colleague Tyler Griffin did a really great job getting some of their examples from other cities and the different uh, very tight criteria that are in place across the board. But in Toronto, for instance, there are only four warming centres citywide, which when you consider the size of Toronto is not that many. Mm. Um, And they only get activated at 7 p.m. on a night when we're going to be seeing temperatures of negative 15 or lower. Negative 15 is already pretty cold. Yeah. So what they're calling attention to is is all is the huge, huge gap in between. There have been hospital studies. There have been all kinds of things tracking how the vast majority of cold-related injuries or deaths take place at temperatures above minus 15. So they're calling on that kind of thing to be revisited in light of some of this data, in light of the lack of shelter spaces more generally, in light of the lack of warming services broadly. That's what the city council is planning to look at this week, is keeping warming centers open 24-7. Yes. And having homelessness declared a public health emergency, which is a whole other thing. Yeah, shelters have already reported a significant increase in demand that they couldn't keep up with, uh, especially yeah. in the last couple of years. The other thing that, that this this came into focus a couple of times during the pandemic when lockdowns were not allowing people into coffee shops or into smaller restaurants or into malls. So mm-hmm. I'm a little surprised this policy wasn't already in place, spearheaded by the last couple of years. That's a really great point. Yeah, because, I mean, Tyler Griffin's story that I mentioned before does actually quote someone saying that places like libraries and and subway stations and and 24-hour restaurants are already becoming sort of de facto shelter spaces is how this person put it for that reason, because there just isn't enough space anywhere. Um, We've seen all kinds of stats about the shelter system being at capacity all the time. The warming centers are, of course, their own separate issue, and those Mm -hmm, are all for sure mm -hmm. at capacity. Like on Friday night when, when... those temperatures hit the levels you were talking about, Dave, there was 99% occupancy. There was only one warming center spot left in the whole city. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's a really good point. Um, We have a new council as of last year. So maybe the political will or the, the, uh, priorities for some of the new new councillors have shifted a little bit. I'm not sure what's driving this change right now, but it's certainly a very active conversation. Michelle is a proud Montrealer and a longtime Ottawan. I sometimes make fun of you Southern Ontarians when it comes to a winter but, which temperatures. Which is fair, yeah. But Friday was cold. Oh boy, Friday That is the real deal cold. Yeah, that was no joke at all. Yeah, there were <laughs> Not couple... calling in the army, but it was really cold. <laughs> there, were, there, was, there were a couple moments uh, walking into work and walking home from work where I was like, you definitely should have considered an alternative mode of transportation or called in sick today. But that's another story for another day, Michelle. We got to get out of here. You have yourself a great day.
You too, Dave. Take care. That is Michelle McQuaig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press and part of the Friday news panel. You want to tune into that one Friday at about 9.15 a.m. Eastern time with Michelle, myself, and Joita. But coming up next, ChatGPT has some interesting accessibility possibilities. Denny Boudreau will share his thoughts. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your morning business minutes. Despite better-than-expected jobs data from the U.S. last Friday, North American stock markets finished in the red, except for Bay Street, which saw a slight gain. Toronto's S&P TSX added almost 18 points to close at 20,758. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 128 points, down to 33,926, while the Nasdaq fell 194 points to 12,007. It's been a mixed start for the Asian markets this week, with Japan's Nikkei finishing up 184 points at 27,694. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong closed down 438 points at 21,222. A number of companies are poised to release their latest earnings numbers this week. Saputo, Enbridge and Magna International. And experts say the outlook for the loonie in 2023 depends on a number of factors, including how the U.S. dollar fares. This morning, the loonie is trading at 74.54 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You have surely heard of ChatGPT by now. Just in case, ChatGPT is a language processing tool that uses artificial intelligence. It allows you to essentially have a conversation with a robot. It's fun to play with, but ChatGPT also presents accessibility possibilities. On the flip side, it could present threats to accessibility professionals. Denny Boudreau is the founder of Inclusive Communication, and Denny has been playing around with the chatbot. Hey, good morning, Denny. Good morning. Denny, you posted a pretty cool conversation you had with ChatGPT on your blog. We'll get to the conversation in a moment, but what was your curiosity with the chatbot? What made you want to dive into this AI conversation? Well, I, I started playing around with artificial intelligence around 2016. Uh, was the first time that I can remember um, playing with that and, and wondering about you know how, what we could do with um, you know automating image descriptions, for instance, on, on websites. So I've always been excited about those things. So when ChatGPT came out and and I heard about it gathering like a million followers over the course of like four days was like, I need to be on that <laughs> bus as well. I mean, that was, that was just it. Um, so, so, I mean, what got me excited initially, what got me interested was just a perspective of actually being able to have a conversation with a tool that would make Google searches easier. I mean, that was my first, my first thought is if I can get answers straight from that, that tool, as opposed to going through pages and pages of, you know, search results on, on Google or any other uh, search engine like that, that would probably speed up my uh, my research, for instance. And that's exactly what it does. Um, not, not exactly perfect just yet. I mean, there's still a lot of things that are not perfect about it, but the perspective of that being a game changer was very clear from the very beginning. And I've been playing with it ever since. You posted this really interesting conversation you had with the robot on your blog. What kind of questions were you asking? So, so what what happened was that, you know, I like most people, I guess, when I started playing with it, I was asking random questions about different things and and was genuinely blown away by how conversational the whole thing was and how it seemed to know everything. And very quickly, I started asking questions about things that I actually also knew about so that I could you know, validate whether the answers were true or not. And what I found was that it really wasn't that all that precise or accurate. So I figured that if a lot of people, because a lot of people are, are learning or trying to get into this field, digital accessibility, inclusion on the web and technology and all these things. So I figured most people are going to start looking into this tool to get answers to their questions, much like they used to go to forums before and then ask questions to other members of the, their community, and then they would learn that way. And um, and my concern really quickly was that if people are relying on a tool like ChatGPT to learn about accessibility, they're going to learn about a lot of things that are actually not true or, or misguided or misinformed or, or flat out wrong. Mm. So I wanted to have a conversation with a tool to ask it, like, what like what were the possibilities when it came to that? 
and um, and the conversation went into a slightly different direction because, I mean, even today, I mean, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't claim that I control it. I'm much better at, at playing with it than I used to be. But um, you know, you have to get really good with your prompts to really bring it in the conversation that you want to have, and not the conversation that it it will just create for you because it, it a lot of that it is randomly generated based on what you're asking. So the more precise your questions, the better the outcome will be. So, so the conversation was about that in general, like what, 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 is, what is the threat potentially of a tool like ChatGPT for the future of our field? Because if people are relying on a tool like that to learn about accessibility, they might learn wrong things. That was the idea. <laughs> Which is certainly a bit of a danger, right? We don't want people saying, well, ChatGPT told me this, so therefore I now, I'm now armed with this information that's incorrect. Yeah. So, so Denis, I, that was largely the, the, the crux of this conversation, right? The possibilities, the prospects versus the threats. As you reflect on this conversation that you had with the chatbot, what do you believe its prospects are when it comes to accessibility? I think the prospects are, are amazing, really. Um, you know, what, what people have to understand is that chat GPT, like it's not intelligence per se, it's just a gathering of data. Like we've talked about it a couple of times, you and I, I mean, it's, it's artificial intelligence is just a massive amount of data put at our disposal. And that data comes from humans and humans are flawed and humans make assumptions about things. Humans write about what they think they understand as part of their process to, to learning about these things. Mm. So chat GPT or any other you know, natural language processing models like that, they can't make the difference between what is accurate and what isn't. So it just gathers everything and then it spits that out at, back at you. So a lot of the information that is in there right now is just inaccurate. And chat GPT is awesome at telling you everything in such an authoritative way that it sounds like it's true, but really, most of the time, a significant part of it is either inaccurate or or just you know, scratches the surface a little bit. So, I mean, the prospects are amazing, but in orders in order for us to be able to rely on it in the accessibility field, for instance, there's going to be a, a need for a lot of cleaning up of the data so that it becomes more and more uh, accurate over time. And you know, that's true with pretty much every field, right? I mean, any any conversation people have with the tool about a particular topic, if that topic was in part misinformed, the information that ChatGPT would spit out, to spit back at people would also be in part misinformed. So, you know, the, the, the potential is there for sure. Um, I've seen, I've, I've got a couple of people that I know that have played with it to create code, for instance, some, some, of, some of your listeners are probably, I've probably heard about that too, but you know, ChatGPT can, can generate code for you. So, Friends were asking, okay, so uh, generate me like a piece of code for like an accessible button or an accessible modal dialogue or something. And the information was pretty good, but it was missing some aspects or it was making again, uh, you know, it was cutting corners a little bit. Mm. So relying on it today is not, is not recommendable, I'd say, but leaning on it to get started is already a really good thing to do. Over time, it's going to get better. Like mo like most things, like most uh, most technology, really, um, you know, things are to a certain extent today, and they're going to be like a million times better in a year, two years, five years from now. So it's definitely going to be a huge leg up for helping people learn about this field. But we still need experts today that can. You know, make the, the the differentiation between what is accurate, what is accurate, and what isn't. Yeah, we we still have to help the machine learn. We have to give the machine the right tools right. to actually exactly. learn. Um, Denny, as I think about that point you just made and the broader conversation you and I have been having over the last two years, it seems like we revisit the topic of automating inclusion, mm. whether it be yeah. accessibility overlays on websites that are oftentimes subpar, or the possibility of using AI to solve accessibility barriers. Where do you think this drive or even pressure comes? from? From to find these non-human solutions. So, I can't remember how long it's been, but a while ago we had a conversation about this for automated tools for testing. I mean, I could probably go back to that recording that we have and then give you the exact same answer today. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just another tool that helps us do this, right? So. I'm pretty sure that what I said back then would be along the lines of, you know, developers, designers, content creators, people involved in the development of websites, applications, they have a lot of things to work on and accessibility is just one of those things. 
And if they don't get why it matters, if it doesn't touch them personally, they are likely to just, you know, do what they have to do and then stop. They're not really going any further. So it's not that people aren't motivated, it's that they just don't get it or they're busy. So any tool that allows a developer, say, to generate code quickly that will also happen to be accessible is a fantastic uh, improvement, right? So I think these tools, whether it's ChatGPT or, you know, we're starting to hear about Google Sparrow, which will be Google's response to ChatGPT from OpenAI say, and others. So, so I mean, as these tools get better and, and developers can rely on them, as designers can rely on them to create mockups, to create code um, that happens to be accessible, then it's going to be really great from that standpoint. Um, and, and, you know, the idea is that the more people can leverage these tools to get where they need to go, without having to spend all that time doing it, the more likely that websites are going to become more accessible and then applications are going to become more usable to people with disabilities. Denny, I want to reiterate how much I enjoyed the blog post you did about this. What kind of response have you gotten to the post? Uh, pretty good. People were people were uh, were mostly surprised by the fact. So it, it's interesting. I mean, I so so I'm going to start by by yeah, too too many ideas at the same time. So what I was <laughs> what I was going to say is that the post was interesting to me because ChatGPT had this very natural, benevolent way of looking at things, where it was saying, you know, you need to be careful with using me as a tool because I only know so much about it, and you always will need to be able to double check with experts, for instance. So I thought that was really insightful because ultimately that was my own conclusion going through this with with the process was that wow, this is really amazing, but it's not there yet. If someone was to rely on this alone, they would be misled. And ChatGPT was recognizing that. Now, what, what we need to think about is that you know, the, the data that is being used by ChatGPT right now is a limited subset of data that dates from 2021. So it's not even connected to the web yet. But when you think about a tool like that, a technology like that, that is connected live with the internet as we know it, where everything that gets added and, and indexed one way or another also gets looped into its data set, then it's you know it's it's knowledge in real time. So so that's what people were were reacting to for the most part. I think. I mean, the conversation itself, um, like my the the title of the blog post was something along the lines of "Will ChatGPT threaten the future of accessibility or the the field of accessibility?" And the conversation wasn't so much about that, mostly because my ability to control it back then wasn't as good as it would be today. But the conversation went into a direction where it was still talking about cautionary tales about not relying on technology too much and also relying on exper experience and expertise from humans who've been there and can validate whatever assertions that ChatGPT will will give you when you when you ask it questions. So it was it was interesting for that from that standpoint for sure. It's good to know we've already taught our robots self-awareness. That's good. We've already projected our own uh, human foibles Maybe. onto them. Denis, thank you for this. We always appreciate your perspective on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you. Have a great day. That is Denis Boudreau, the founder of Inclusive Communication. Coming up next, Amy Amanti reviews Will Smith's new movie, Emancipation. But first, composting is getting a bit more high-tech. Mike Dubusky explains in Tech Trends. Mill is a new company that for 33 bucks a month will grant you a composting membership. Kristen Verdone is head of product. She says it all starts with a bin. It looks like a normal kitchen bin. It has a pedal and a lid. There's no mental load to learn how to use this thing. You press the pedal, the lid opens up, and you throw in your food scraps. Normally, those scraps would be left to decompose. Now I've got fruit flies, and I have to remember to take this trash out every day. Verdone says the bin is instead designed to turn them into food grounds by heating them up and grinding them down. This is dried, compacted, not smelly, um, and they look kind of like coffee grounds. Those grounds can help fertilize your garden or you have a pathway to send them to farms rather than landfills um, using the U.S. Postal Service. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Emancipation is a historical drama starring Will Smith that's available on Apple TV+. Here is a clip from the trailer. Thanks to God. A man sits in a cabin with his family. The Lord is with us. 
What can a mere man do to me? He's locked in the back of a wagon. Papa! I will come back to you! His son runs after the wagon as he looks back. The wagon rolls down roads between fields. The cage is full of men. You walk the earth. A horse steps through mud and puddles. Because I let you. I'm your god now. Directed by Antoine Fuqua. Slaves are free. A group of slaves swing pickaxes. We must get to Baton Rouge, through this swamp. Lincoln's army is there. There are many ways to die in a swamp. A bullet ricochets off a tree as the man flees. Confederate slave catchers summon a pack of dogs. Riders chase escaping slaves through a forest. Inspired by a true story. Sun shines between trees as the man flees dogs and riders through a swamp and fields. I must get to my family. What if he don't come back? Underwater, he uses a branch to hold off an alligator. Your papa is going to be back. Do not ever stop believing that. Amy Menti is here with a review of Emancipation. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. How are you this Monday? I'm I'm well, Amy. The trailer tells you a lot about what this movie is about, but what stands out to you about the story that it was telling? Yeah, I think, you know, contextualizing this, if, if anybody doesn't know the time of, of Lincoln and when he freed enslaved people was 1860s, right? So we're going back to the 1860s here. And um, our, our lead character is uh, Peter. And as you've seen, Peter uh, has been taken away from his home uh, to a plantation where he's made to work. But this happens after Lincoln has freed enslaved people. And so the message either hasn't gotten to all uh, owners of enslaved folks, or they're ignoring the orders. Mm -hmm. So when Peter learns from the other black men in the camp that the that people that, that are enslaved have been freed and they are still made to work, um, they flee, they run. Will Smith is clearly the star of this vehicle. Who else is mm -hmm. in the cast? Yeah, so uh, Will Smith plays Peter, who is essentially our, our lead character. Um, <clears throat> uh, one of the men that he flees with, uh, the uh, name is Gordon, and the reason I share this with you is because, as we learned, it's based on a true story. So Peter and Gordon, uh, there's a third, but Peter and Gordon are the primary uh, uh, men that flee together. Uh, that actor is Gilbert, Gilbert Owa'or. And, uh, and Ben Foster is also in this movie. And Ben Foster got some notoriety from his role in 310 to Yuma. Mm. And, uh, and some work that he did on Freaks and Geeks was, was a series that was around for about one season. But Ben Foster plays a white owner of enslaved people. And he is absolutely terrifying. Amy, you mentioned in that case, Ben Foster really leaning into the role and becoming terrifying. How were the performances? Because Will Smith is coming off an, an Academy Award win. Yeah. You know, it's funny. When I was talking to some of my friends about this the other night, they were like, we didn't even think that Will Smith would get another role considering what happened at the Oscars um, when he gave a slap, <laughs> a notable slap on a stage, right? Um, so people, I think, thought that he would be removed from... Uh, allowed to do films based on cancel culture. Um, and then I had to remind them that this is an Apple TV series uh, or uh, movie, so it's not an Academy necessarily thing. That doesn't mean it might not be nominated for something in the future, but strictly speaking, it's not an Academy um, thing. So the performances in this, just to go back to your question, Dave, are really, really strong. And Will Smith has kind of ebbed and flowed for me. Like, he's been in a lot of different films, uh, sometimes plays a one-note character, the same character kind of every time. Um, but this really required him to dig a little bit deeper. And I think when you're playing a character, he, he did this before in Pursuit of Happiness, mm. uh, which was a, a really great role for him incredible, as well. Incredible, incredible right? movie. And I think when actors are asked to play roles that were real people, there's a higher there's a higher level of stakes. So you better come in with your homework done, with your background information, making your acting choices, um, you know, because it's different than doing something like Men in Black, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, this, the stakes are much higher. You want to be able to honor that person's journey. But all the performances were really strong. 
right in the preview, it says explicitly the film is based on a true story. What is some of the relevant background there? Yeah, so the film is written by uh, William N. College, uh, based loosely, it's loosely because everything's got a little bit of uh, um, dramatic uh, inflection, I suppose. Um, uh, so loosely on the real life story of Peter and Gordon, uh, and these are these two men that were uh, enslaved black men. And um, what's the important about this story, and, and it tells you that it's based on a true story, but you don't actually really recognize that until later in the film, because I didn't do any research going into this. I just clicked play. Yeah. So I was shocked. Yeah. And I was like, what? Real? What? Um, and so these two men... Um, uh, Peter, in particular, once he gets to Lincoln's army, um, gets actually sort of recruited by force into the army, which you think is, wait a second, Lincoln's freed enslaved people, so why is he being forced to work in the army? But while he's there, two white men uh, who are photographers come up to Peter and ask him if if he is comfortable with them taking photographs of his whippings on his back. And um, and that is the picture that is an iconic picture through history and has been sent uh, around the world, especially at that, even in 18, in the 1863 era, was sent as far as they could send this photo um, to prove, to prove, and I hate that they use this language, but it's to prove um, how horribly folks who were enslaved were treated. And, uh, and it really helped support the abolitionist act. Up along those lines, Amy, these kinds of movies can be incredibly difficult to watch because of the subject matter. Um, off the top of my head, I think about a movie like Django Unchained, which was even a bit playful about the way that it dealt with slavery, but was still incredibly difficult to watch. How hard was it to watch this one? Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, it's uncomfortable, but I think we are asked, you know, good art, good theater, good film, asks us to be in a place of of being uncomfortable because it's important especially when you're watching something that's outside of your lived experience it's important to acknowledge the things that happened um, so that we can do our best as a humanity to prevent them from happening again um, and a lot of you know what we've been talking about with current you know um, conversations around residential schools and acknowledging the truth there and that there are still people who are like oh come on none of that really happened um, that that mindset is no longer, I shouldn't say no longer, it was never appropriate, but somehow we let people get away with that. Um, and I think that that work like this um, goes to, to bolster the truth. Amy, there are some production factoids that you wanted to share. What was interesting about the way this film was made? Yeah, um, I wanted to share a couple of things about that because I, I I always think that these kinds of things are interesting. So originally the producer who was Joey McFarland was interested in the story of Peter and Gordon back in 2018. Of course, he then hired College to write the script, um, which was officially announced in 2020. So that's when uh, Will Smith came on and Foucault came on to direct. Um, but what was interesting to me is that this film was... This is probably leading into the next question here, so we can combine them. But this film was originally set to be filmed in Georgia. Um, and then it was later announced that it was going to be filmed elsewhere. Why? And elsewhere being Louisiana and New Orleans. Why elsewhere? Well, because Will Smith and Fakwa, who are both uh, black men, were very upset about the fact that they were going to be paying into the economic system of Georgia based on a newly enacted act, the Election Integrity Act mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. 2021. And folks may not remember this act in particular. And so just a couple of things about the act was that it had uh, like removed uh, the ability for people to vote in like voter drop off boxes, mostly in rural areas, which really impacted black people getting to vote. Um, and this was uh, at, the, the, at the last election, right? So at the time where we were, uh, voting was very uh, polarized after trump was in office and all the all the stuff that went around with that so uh and it stopped the ability to do a lot of absentee voting without it being uh, a huge amount of curves to jump through a huge amount of hoops to jump mm -hmm, through mm -hmm. and so a lot of folks in the black community um were unable to vote and so it was really looked at as a very racist law around voting so smith and Fakwa were like um no <laughs> And in a joint statement, they said, we cannot in good conscience provide economic support to a government uh, to a government that enacts regressive voting laws that are designed 
to uh, restrict voter access. So this was looked at a very anti-democratic uh, law. Yeah, it sure was. And there were a lot of other fallouts of uh, businesses moving their way out of Georgia Absolutely. as a result, it, including events that were taken away. Uh, Amy, you mentioned the rural side of that yeah. law. There were a lot of urban concerns as well. Um, one of them specifically sure. was that people were not allowed to provide water or food to people while waiting in mm -hmm. line for polling. Yep. It limited the number of polling places inside urban communities that were disproportionately black. It yep. was, it was, there was a lot to this law that although it could be perceived as, oh, we're just trying to do fairness in voting. No, it was disproportionately loaded the, with racial overtones. And the thing about the food, when I did some research, like the food and water and the lines up, the way they vote, they worded it in the law was that um you know that people you know okay these really long lineups right so people were were bringing food and water to folks who were waiting in line and that's the nice thing to do but the law says that you couldn't do that in order to not solicit or change the vote of the person who was in line right like oh i'll give you water if you vote in the way i want you to vote so that's how they worded it um so that it made it seem sort of i don't know like they were doing you a favor. Yeah. Um, essentially, they were just denying people who were waiting in line for hours and hours and hours access of like good neighbors. Yeah, absolutely. Amy, yeah. coming back to the film Emancipation, how was the description? The description was excellent. Um, Apple always does a really, um, a really high quality job with uh, with uh, with with description and so notably for me again this is a movie that is very much tied to the power dynamic of white and black and so it's really important for me to know which characters identify which ways right without making assumptions so it did a really great job with that it was using updated language so instead of referring to people as slaves they're enslaved people when you actually do some of the interesting like research around the change in language like slaved makes it look when you say somebody's a slave it actually makes it look like um they had choice in that uh, when you were enslaved that's the power dynamic that somebody forced mm. something on a group of people so there's a, a change in language around that so they the describers using that language in this film my one rub was there's a moment in this film where the uh, where peter comes into a plantation that's on fire after he's escaped and it says that there are two dead men uh, on the on the front lawn and I'm learning are these black men or white men because what it changes for me is either this plantation has been attacked by a group of folks that were enslaved um, or that white men attacked a group of folks that were enslaved and so not knowing the diversity of those two dead men changed that storyline for me you, you didn't know yeah. uh, you know what was happening in that moment but otherwise I thought it was really excellent what's your final rating of emancipation I gave it a nine and a half out of 10. And I'll tell you why, Dave, it's not, certainly not a perfect movie. I say that a lot. I don't think that there is such a thing. However, when you start to learn that it's a movie based on, on real circumstances and real life uh, experiences, I'm less concerned about the, like, is it a good movie or is it a bad movie? Um, and more like, oh my gosh, this happened to a real human being. Mm. And I find it difficult to try and uh, quantitate uh, a score based on that. So I really just think it's a movie that everybody should watch um, as a little bit of a history lesson, um, as a little bit of, of hard truth, and uh, and to just be a little bit more aware of, of other experiences that have happened. Because the impacts of of uh, enslaved folks, just like of, of residential schools, still exist to this day. Absolutely. Amy, thank you for this thoughtful review. Thank you, Dave. That's Amy Manti with a review of Apple TV Plus's Emancipation. You can find that one, unsurprisingly, on Apple TV Plus. Coming up after the break, I've got the regional news update, and Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.